Podcast. Recorded at WeWork in Midtown Toronto, this is E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed, hosted by Adam LeVinter. E2 is the podcast where great entrepreneurs tell their story. Hey guys, welcome back to E2 Entrepreneurs Exposed. Thank you so much for tuning in. This is the podcast where we speak with all kinds of unique and interesting creators in the world of entrepreneurship. And today we've got a new sponsor. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register or incorporate your business, and even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. So my guest today is Jordan Harbinger, and Jordan was once referred to as the Larry King of podcasting, is a Wall Street lawyer turned talk show host and entrepreneur, and after hosting a top 50 iTunes podcast called Art of Charm for over a decade that enjoyed nearly 4 million downloads a month, Jordan has embarked on a new venture, The Jordan Harbinger Show, where he deconstructs the playbooks of the most successful people on earth. In this episode, we do talk about Jordan's start in podcasting, which dates way back to 2006, when the average person certainly had no idea about podcasting, how that led to a spot on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. We also discuss Jordan's interview prep routine, how he dives into specifics before he interviews notables like Shaq, Russell Brand, Simon Sinek, Mike Rowe, Tim Ferriss, and others, and his passion for travel. Interestingly, Jordan's been to North Korea four times. And we do dig into all kinds of stories related to that in this episode. So without delay, here is the very well-traveled, well-spoken, and certainly always entertaining Jordan Harbinger. Why don't we start with the the, the podcasting stuff? We'll start with your, your new adventure. So the Jordan Harbinger show, I mean, it's really on its way. It's well over a million downloads a month, I think, currently, right? You're, you're right up there. Oh, yeah. Current show, 1.6 million downloads a month. Yeah. And you've got some amazing guests. What is the show about for those that might not be familiar with your stuff? Yeah. So if you're not familiar with the Jordan Harbinger show, I study or we study the thoughts, the actions and the habits of who I consider to be pretty brilliant people with some exceptions and ask them questions that my audience can use to apply that same wisdom for themselves. So in other words, I want to take other people's superpowers and deliver them to you. And so every episode has worksheets based on the content. So I'll interview someone like Larry King and I'll say, all right, conversational skills, You've done 60,000 interviews, literally, something like that, over your career. What are you doing to stay curious? How do you stay curious? What do you do to get information out of people they don't want to give? Or I'll have General Stanley McChrystal talk about how he makes a tough decision where he's like, I know people are probably going to die as a result of this, but it's going to be less than this other decision. And I even talk to CIA agents or con artists to talk about how they read people and get information out of people. And then we teach the audience how to apply those same skills for themselves. Maybe maybe less waterboarding involved than than with a normal sort of spy thing. But, you know, it's really all about learning and application because there's a lot of shows out there that do interviews and they're just kind of interesting. And then there are a lot of other shows that do interviews and they try to get only practicals. It's like, what's your favorite book? What do you like to you know do on the weekend or whatever? But I really want to get the why behind what the guest does. And I want the audience, the listener to go, okay, after hearing this and looking at the worksheet, I can now make this decision in a better way, or I can now 
be sure that I'm doing X, Y, and Z properly based on an expert's advice. Sounds like a cross between Simon Sinek meets Tim Ferriss sort of approach. Yeah, I would say that's pretty accurate. The one thing I will say is different. Yeah, because Simon Sinek is great with the whole knowing the why, but then it's like, okay, where where's like the, the hardcore step-by-step? And then Tim Ferriss is very step-by-step, but a lot of it seems like it's a little bit more analytical than I would like to do. So Tim's got great stuff. Nobody will doubt that. However, what I want is I want to get a really good story. I want to have a really good conversation, not just be like, okay, go favorite book, favorite billboard, favorite animal, favorite Muppet baby or whatever. You know, I don't (laughs) want to do the speed round type of stuff. I want to have a real profile on somebody. And that's what allows me to get deeper things than another interviewer would get. And it's a skill that I've cultivated over 11 years because people aren't just going to go, oh yeah, you want to know something useful? Let me tell you this really useful story. They're just going to give you the quick answer unless you dive deep into it. What is your personal mission? I mean, you mentioned Larry King. He's done 60,000 interviews or something of that nature that you said. Is your mission to become the next Larry King of podcasting? Yeah, I like that. I wouldn't mind that. I used to, in fact, this is kind of embarrassing. They used to call me, and by they, I mean, I think it was Forbes, said, oh, he's the Charlie Rose of podcasting. And I had to call Forbes and be like a friend of mine there and go, can you go back and change that? And they're like, why would we change a published article? And I was like, it says I'm the Charlie Rose of podcasting. And they were like, yep, we're on it. Because it was like the day after all that stuff broke about Charlie Rose. And it really, it was a shame because I love Charlie Rose's interviews. But I'm like, you don't want to be that. It's like Adam Leventer. He is the Harvey Weinstein of his niche. It's like, uh, um, can we choose someone else? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. So. The stats, I I was looking up some stats, 40 million Americans or something listen to podcasts regularly. But back when you got started, I want to say circa 2006 or something like that, people didn't even know that this medium really existed. Like if you were to go up to somebody on the street in 2006 and say, what's a podcast? People, you know, half the people wouldn't even know what that was. Like statistically, 80% plus wouldn't even know what it is, hadn't heard of it. And, and we were literally, in 2006, we were looking at where can we put, a, this is the exact sort of dialogue we were using, where can we put an MP3 file so that people can get it anywhere, from anywhere? And it was like, I was asking computer expert engineer friends of mine at the University of Michigan who were studying computer engineering, and they're like, putting an MP3 online? Why don't you just have them on your hard drive and then when people open napster remember that then they can search your music and i'm like uh i'm looking for like a website and then i can host the file there so i remember having talks at over lunch with specialists who are like man if you put a bunch of mp3 files on a web server people are gonna have to figure you're gonna have to mark the downloaded files really clear and then a lot of people they're gonna open so we want to have code that opens them in a separate window, otherwise your site's gonna close. And I was like, okay, what if it just saves automatically? And they're like, oh, well, it'll pop up a dialogue box. I mean, it was just like Netscape Navigator problems, you know, Mm -hmm. and and Internet Explorer 2.0 or whatever problems. And there just wasn't a good solution. And then finally, we, we abandoned the idea. This is early 2006. And then finally, somebody was like, there's this new thing called podcasting. If you have iTunes, you can host your show in there, which you can't do. You can't host it. It's just a directory. So we we bought a server, and we had a friend put it together, 
and we put all these MP3 files on there, and then eventually we moved up to a GoDaddy server, and it was just like the tech was just not there. If that's what you're asking, it was such a to do, and we printed up these business cards that had instructions, which I wish I'd kept some, on how to find the podcast. And we made a website that showed you how to download and install iTunes and then download the shows from within iTunes. There was no iPhone. There was no smartphone that you could download it from mobily. You had to play it in iTunes while sitting in front of your computer. And that was how we started. So how do you get traction in a world where you're just piecing together bits of technology to make something work? You don't think about getting traction. Really, because we weren't like, all right, we're starting a show. It's going to be the next big thing. That was not what we were talking about. We were like, okay, we were at the time burning the conversation MP3 files to CDs, and I was keeping them in sleeves in my pocket of a blazer. So when I would go out at night, people would say, wait a minute, you're just talking about body language. I've seen you here before. You're talking about persuasion. I've seen you here before. Because we were always talking about this stuff with our friends, and they'd go, teach me something. And I'd be like, bam, here's a DVD I burned in my dorm room, literally. And it was a dorm for law school at the time. And people were like, great. And I remember people coming back and going, hey, dude, I gave away that CD or DVD that you gave me. Do you have another one? And I'd be like, yeah, who'd you give it to? And they'd be like, oh, my friend Sam. And I'm like, oh, I know Sam. And then I'd go to Sam, and I'd be like, hey, can I get that DVD back? And he'd be like, actually, I gave it to my cousin. And I'm like, oh, okay. So I, I would print up 20 for the next weekend give all of them away. And then they'd be like, Hey, can I get another one of those? I gave it to my roommate. Hey, can I get another one of those? I brought it home and my brother borrowed it. He is not giving it back. He likes it. I'm just like, okay, so we're on to something here. And I was started to ask people, Hey, can you just give me like a dollar so that I can buy another DVD? And people were like, yeah, here's five bucks, man. Thanks. And our first idea of course was let's sell these. And I thought this is dumb. I'm not trying to get into the $5 at a time DVD or C audio CD business. I'm studying to be an attorney for crying out loud. So once we started hosting the files, we just gave out the business cards. We're like, tell your friend he can get it here. And then we started checking our traffic and we were like, whoa, we had 24 downloads today. That is insane, right? And we were dancing around in the kitchen. And then after a while, I was like, oh, let's see where these downloads are from. Oh, they're all from, they're not all from Ann Arbor, Michigan. There's some people in Canada. Wow, that's really cool. So I remember doing a shout out on the show like, hey, if you're the guy from Canada downloading, email me. And we got like dozens of emails. And I thought, oh, this isn't one guy downloading from his home in an off is his office. There's a lot of people listening and a bunch of them wrote us and a bunch of them probably went, I'm not emailing you guys. And then we saw people from South Africa and I was like, what? So I said, hey, if you're the person in South Africa, write me. I want to know why you're listening to the show. And this guy wrote me and he goes, hey, I listen. I'm a game park ranger you should come do a safari. I'll hook you guys up. And I burn your stuff to CD because again, remember there's no iPod at this time. I'm burning your stuff to CD. I'm going out of my Jeep all day. And I just listen to you guys all day. And I was like, this is just bonkers. There's nobody doing this. There were radio stations that were trying to do like, Hey, you can stream online. If you download real player, if you guys remember that POS software mm. and, but there was nothing you could sort of take with you other than music. So there were 800 podcasts by the time we finally made it into the iTunes store. 800. Now there are 400,000. And I think I think the new ad speed of shows is something like 1,500 a day. Or wow. at least it was at one point. Yeah, right? Ridiculous. It may not be that high anymore. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was just it was just kind of crazy thinking, wait a minute. And I remember going into iTunes and going, 800? No one's ever going to find this. How are they going to sit through 800? 
It's impossible. Now there's 400,000 people are still finding it. And it's, it's still discoverability is still a terrible problem with podcasts. You know, you tell your friend to go subscribe and unless they know exactly what a podcast is already subscribed to one, have an app installed and know how to search in it. They're just like, huh? But you believed in the medium so strongly way back, you know, 12 years ago that you actually left your, your job as an attorney to pursue this full time. So you're, you're sort of podcasting on the side and then you took a job on wall street. Let me know if I get any of this wrong. Yeah. To be Um, clear, the market tanked and they laid off 53 first year associates and still paid us for the entire rest of the next year. So I, I wasn't like, I'm crushing it in my Wall Street career. It was like, hey, you're going to need to get another job. You have a nine-month runway. And I was like, I've got this show that's doing well. So uh, I'm out. Okay. You, you had a bit of a, so you, you didn't necessarily, I mean, did you know you absolutely wanted to do this full-time? Or you just sort of, you, I mean, if you didn't get no. laid off, do you think you would have pursued this? No. Well, what happened was since I started it in school, I was doing the law thing. And then since the law thing was sort of tightening down, I had started to work a lot on people were listening to the show and they were like, hey, can you coach me through this problem? And I'm like, I'm not a coach, dude. I'm not like a life coach. And they're like, no, no, no. I've had coaches. You are better at what you're talking about than these guys. I can tell because I listen to your show. And I'm like, all right, $100 an hour. And they're like, great. And this one guy gave us like five grand and I was like, crap. And the first thing he said is, hey, raise your prices. And I went, what? Mm. And he gave us a ton of money. And another guy gave us a bunch of money for phone coaching. And I would do these coaching calls at night for like a hundred bucks an hour. And it was awesome. And it was just like paying my bar tabs, you know, left and right and still in, in law school. And then when I finally went to Wall Street, I had people going, hey, I still want to do coaching with you. And I was like, I don't have time. I'm, I'm a lawyer now. And they're like, oh, bummer. What if I just come visit you in New York? I'll pay you. I'll stay with you for a week. And then after work, we can go out and hang out. And I was like, sure. So we had somebody do that and they stayed in my apartment. And then this is somebody I knew from the phone coaching. It wasn't like a rando. It was mm-hmm. a guy who'd been doing coaching with me on the phone for months. And then I talked about that on the show and a bunch of people went, I didn't know we could just come stay with you. And I started just money just started falling from the freaking sky. And, and strangers like, crashing on your floor. Exactly. But I, but I was like, I don't have time for this. So I hired some coaches to work with me. And that's how the company originally started. It wasn't like I'm going to start a company. It was demand driven. Got it. Entirely. And then after the economy started to tank and they said, hey, you guys all need to get new jobs. I was like, do I want to bust my ass to get a job as a lawyer when I know I don't really want to be one when I've got all these people working out of my apartment while I'm gone? doing awesome stuff and growing the business? And the answer was, hell no. And then we got a guest spot on Sirius XM Satellite Radio. And I went over there and did it. And the station manager happened to be listening. And he goes, oh, it's so funny. It's Have you guys ever done radio before? And it was like, no, but we have this podcast, if you, know, if you don't know what that is. And he's like, I've heard of them. So I gave him the card that shows you how to download and install iTunes and listen. And, and a couple weeks later, I follow up and I go, look, I know you probably didn't have time to listen to the podcast, but I was wondering if you had any other opportunities for me to come on the radio as a guest because it was so fun. And he goes, no, I, I've been listening to your show nonstop since you gave me the card. I've devoured all of the episodes of your podcast. You should have your own show. I meant to call you. And I was like, what? And he's like, yeah, come in on Fridays. And I said, so there's this problem. I'm a lawyer. And he goes, fine, come in after work at seven, do a show every week for two hours. And I went, okay. So I just started doing a Sirius XM satellite radio show. And I know it sounds like Forrest Gump luck, and part of it is. But remember, 
I'd been doing a podcast for a year. So I'd been cutting my teeth in a way that made it so that I could do a, a radio show as so I was ready for the opportunity when that struck. When you get this call from Sirius and you've been doing this for a year, do you have enough confidence at this point to sit in that seat and say, yeah, like this makes sense? No, I didn't have any confidence. Every day was like, when is my ID going to stop working? And then they're like, oh, yeah, we totally shouldn't have hired you. You suck at this. Sorry to break it to you. That's what I was waiting for for years. Right. And then I thought, that's fine. I'll just go back to my podcast because people are listening to that. Bit of imposter syndrome in a way. Yeah. Everybody has imposter syndrome. Uh, I should put it this way. I've learned over the years interviewing everyone from Navy SEALs to CEOs and super high performing, even celebrity level people on my show, on the Jordan Harbinger show and others, that every high performer has imposter syndrome. It's actually one of the hallmarks, if I can use that word in this way. I, sh I should say it's a, it's a common characteristic or character trait of a high performer. If you think you're supposed to be there, there's something else going on. Either you're really confident or you're delusionally confident because you don't understand why you don't have any of the reasons why you shouldn't be unlock. And the problem is that masquerades as one of you can't tell which it is. So there's a lot of people that are like, of course, I'm supposed to be here. And it's like, well, are you just an entitled sort of arrogant type or are you just so experienced that you feel at home in that arena? Right. And, and so unfortunately, you can't tell which is which that's kind of in the eye of the beholder in a lot of ways. So that's why I tell people, hey, if, if someone, if you're thinking I'm the only schmuck that got into this law firm and they're going to figure me out and fire me, everyone else is either thinking the same way or there's somebody who's lying about not thinking the same way or there's somebody who really is confident enough to be there, but it's probably unfounded because most people in situations like that, high pressure, high performing situations, have a little bit of insecurity. And the only people that I see that don't seem to have that are professional athletes at the top of their game. And even then, a lot of what they're doing is kind of bluster because it's part of the game. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer and emotional intelligence coach and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on Electricast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. How do you build that confidence over time if you're in this position, say, at Sirius and you're a year into your show and you're like, I, I got to get over my own imposter syndrome, my own insecurities, my own whatever, my own bullshit. That's I think that's one of the that's the elusive obvious. So that's the big secret. People go, well, how do you build the confidence? You don't. You you deal with the imposter syndrome and recognize it as a fact of life. I guarantee you that if we had Ellen DeGeneres on Truth Serum in front of us right now, mm -hmm. and we were like, hey, when you walk on the TV set, do you think, hell yeah, I belong here, I always have? The answer is going to be like, hell no. I even I listened to the show called Making Oprah. Have you ever heard of this? It's a podcast, no. actually. And okay. it's called Making Oprah. And they go back through her history and there's this station manager of like WBEZ or whatever it was in Chicago that first hired her. And she goes, 
you're hiring me for the show? And he's like, yeah, I just, you know, I think you're the right one. And she goes, why? And he goes, it's just a feeling I'm getting. And she goes, you know that I'm a black, overweight female, right? And he's like, yeah. And she goes, black, overweight, female. And he's like, I know. And she's like, okay, but don't say I didn't warn you. You know, it's kind of a funny interaction. Oprah has this. And I guarantee you that even later on in her career, she's probably like, holy cow, like, I can't believe that this is happening. Most high performers are secretly waiting for the other shoe to drop. And sure, over time, you start to go to work every day. Like, I don't, I don't step into my home studio and go, I'm not good enough to do my own show. You know, I don't do that every day. But there are certainly times where I'm on a show with Tony Robbins or sitting in front of Russell Brand or something, and I'm like, okay, don't blow it. You know, don't screw this up. Shaq's in front of you. Act natural. And you do that. You block it out. And then afterwards, you go, okay, I'm going to watch the show and beat myself up about everything I did or did not say. And I hear about guys like David Letterman watching every show they ever did in their career after the end of every show and going, oh, I should have done that. Oh, my timing was a little off over there. That's something that, that's what high performers do. We are anal OCD weirdos who deconstruct everything because we always know that we can do better. And that bleeds over, that naturally lends itself to imposter syndrome, period. Do you do that with your own shows? Do you listen back? Yes. Mm-hmm. Every single one? No, because I have a whole team that listens to every single one, including my wife and mm. my producer, my associate producer, and of course, all the listeners. And to, to listen to every single one would be, it's torturous. And so I don't dedicate time to listen to every single one, but I sure listen to about one every single week. And I only do three shows a week. So the names you mentioned, okay, let's, let's go back there for a sec. Shaquille O'Neal... Russell Brand, Seth Godin, Tim Ferriss. I, I know you've interviewed all these people. Two questions. One, how did you go about getting these people to come on your podcast? And two, what was the prep playbook like? So how did I get them on my show? Honestly, I just kept asking. Well, for, with Tim Ferriss, he asked me to come on the show a couple of times. That's pretty natural. We have, we're friends, so it wasn't weird or anything. Shaq, I asked a friend who knew him. I asked the guy again and 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 again until he was like, okay, if I get him for you, will you shut the hell up and get out of my office? You know, it was basically like every chance I got to politely be persistent, you know, every other month or so for years, I just did it. And he was like, okay, you've earned this opportunity. And it happened. It just happened to come together. Russell Brandt, they pitched me. Mike Rowe, I asked his assistant. They said, sorry, not right now. I persisted for two years and got him on the show. So a lot of it's polite persistence. Now, of course, the numbers do a lot of speaking for themselves. So if I write to somebody, I can say, I, I do a lot of, I get a lot of pleasant surprises where I'll say, hey, I have this show. It gets these numbers. I'd really love to have so-and-so on the show. And then their assistant will write back and be like, yeah, I'm a big fan. When do you want to do it? And I'll be like, finally. You know, finally, I don't have to like do double, triple sow cow somersaults through hoops that are on fire to get people's attention. But that's not always the case. And it only took 11 years. So it's uh, now it's all about my network. And I mean that like warm introductions and relationships. So let me look at who I've got maybe coming up. A lot of these people are authors. We are a permanent stop on pretty much every publisher's book tour because they finally figured out that podcasts with educated audiences sell tons of books. 
Mm-hmm. I'm on a network now that doesn't hurt. So I get pitched for, you know, Susie Orman, you know, Dr. Drew, Adam Carolla, those kind of people will pitch. And we're, you know, become friends with the people who have shows on my network. Adam Carolla, Dr. Drew, for example, I'm a regular on their show. So I have visibility there. If the person listens, that often will get me through. And then since I am towards the top of the podcasting pyramid, if you will, I'm a very careful to make friends with everybody else who I think is up and coming or also people that I think are doing a really great job. And so I will help them get guests. And then what happens is I forget about having helped them for a bunch of times. And then I'll say, Oh, Hey, I see that you had, uh, this funny comedian on your show. Would you mind making that introduction? And they're like, Oh yeah, I would love the chance to help you back because you've helped me book my last dozen guests or so. And so it's really all about give, 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 give and polite persistence. And emphasis on the give, 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 give. If you can give a ton and just not worry about whether you get quote unquote paid back, you will have amazing opportunities just flying at you all the time. The relationship building stuff is critical and the value of giving without any expectation in return. To go back to my second part of that question, which was the prep, what was the playbook like approaching an interview with Shaq? And what does it look like now in terms of prepping for uh, these upcoming interviews? So I usually spend six to 10 hours preparing each guest. What that means is if they have a book, I read the whole book. If they have two books and they're sort of similar topics, I'll read both. I also look at internet research, or I do research on the internet. For example, if they have an interview with somebody else that I respect, I'll listen to that so that I'm not, one, covering all the same topics, two, Sometimes there'll be a little story in there and I'm like, oh, I want to get that and bounce it off this thing I heard about and read about in the book. I also try to do what I call the extra mile. So I'll go on Wikipedia and I'll look at their Wikipedia, but there's this thing called the talk page. And if you go on someone's Wikipedia talk page, that's where you see all these weird kind of like, I hate to put everybody in a bucket, but these sort of like Wikipedia nerds that are very detail oriented and they're in there arguing about everything. And it'll be like, oh, I I added the person's kidnapping. And then another person's like, it didn't get covered in the news. It's just a rumor that was from an episode of a podcast that's not online anymore. And someone's like, yeah, but it happened. And then another person's like, well, we can't verify it. And then another person's like, I'm a personal friend of theirs. It totally happened. And I'm like, okay, I'm asking about that but it didn't even make it into the Wikipedia because these guys are just bickering about it and it's like buried 16,000 pages deep on a Reddit AMA from 2014 or something, right? So I'll grab that. And I'll also, like when in the case of Mike Rowe, I contacted somebody and they were like, oh, my dad went to college with him. I was like, no way, were they friends? He's like, yeah, his roommate was my dad's best friend. And I went, all right, let me get in touch. So I got in touch and I was like, give me a Mike Rowe story that he won't get upset about hearing. And he's like, oh, man, I don't really like to talk about this. It's kind of rude. He's a celebrity. I was like, give me something fun and I'll bounce it off him. And if he's like, no, thanks, then I'll just make sure that we don't air. And he's like, "Okay, fine. Here's this thing that happened with these, you know, baseball tickets or something. So I, I brought that up and Mike Rowe was just floored. He's like, I can't believe, you know, that guy. I'm like, small world. Right. But it's really just legwork. It wasn't just me on the train and I was like, hey, does anybody know Mike Rowe? Yeah, let me tell you about something that happened 20 years ago. That's not how it works. So you really have to do the legwork and get in touch with people and their friends and people that know them that introduced you and ask them questions. And it's worth it. It's worth putting in 10 hours because, yes, you could do the interview with one hour of prep, but your 10 hour 
of prep interview isn't 10 times better. It's 100 times better. Do you hit them with these stories really early on in the episode to sort of build rapport? It depends. You and the guest? Yeah, it okay. depends. I thought you might ask that. It really depends. If someone comes in and they're like, I got this stupid ass podcast. I don't even know what these things are. My friend's sort of making me do this because I'm buddies with him and he knows my manager. What's up, Jordan? I'm tired. Then I'll be like, you know what's funny? I know so-and-so. And they'll be like, no kidding. What? And I'll be like, yeah, then I'll do it. Right. If I need the rapport, then. If I don't need it in the beginning, I will often I'll save it for a better place. So the baseball ticket story with Mike Rowe, I threw it towards the end because I was just like, look, I don't need to be like, hey, I heard you accidentally stole some baseball tickets. You know, it doesn't matter. It was more of a funny way to close things down and leave things on a high note because it was a hilarious story. It was better than just throwing it out in the beginning and then. Now we're talking about his college days, and I'm like, nah, let's get back to your career. Thanks. So let's go back to the wiki searches for a sec. You mentioned the whole kidnapping thing. In doing the research for you, I came up with, I don't know if this was correct or incorrect, but there's a lot of stuff on you being kidnapped not once, but twice. Is there truth to that? There is truth to that. Yeah, they're both not that interesting, and they take a long time to tell the story, but the short version is that once when I was 20, I got into a taxi in Mexico City, turned out to be fake, ended up in a physical altercation with the driver, got away. The second time was five years later, and I was in Serbia, and they had me pegged as some kind of spy, which is ridiculous. And that was a harrowing thing that happened to me and a friend, and we ended up escaping, but not in a very dramatic way. It was just kind of like, hey, I need water. And they're like, oh, we don't have any. And then they went to go find water and, and we escaped. It's kind of a funny story, but it, it, it or a funny and scary story, but it's it's an hour long to tell it right. So I don't think we want to do that in, on the show. But yeah, th those things are true. And it seems like a lifetime ago because I was in my 20s. Now I'm 15 almost years out from that stuff. And I'm just thinking, no, thanks. I'm good on never getting kidnapped again. I'll take it. And OK, so another fact You've been to North Korea how many times now? Four times. Why did you decide to go to North Korea the first time? The first time, I was really interested in it because it was just such a weird place. I was also interested in Turkmenistan. I never made it there. And then I went right when they opened up again to Americans with a friend of mine who's an adventure traveler who invited me to Iran. And I missed the Iran trip, and I was like, dang it. So I didn't want to miss the North Korea trip. As you know, you can't really get to Iran so easily now. And so I was like, I'm not doing that. I'm not having FOMO again. So I went, I came back, talked about it on my show. Immediately, people were like, hold on, you went to North Korea. This is so crazy. And I called a couple of friends of mine, one of which is Neil Strauss, who's a well-known writer. Mm -hmm. And he came and he brought a couple guys. And my other best friend came and we talked about it on our platforms and we got a bunch of people going, I can't believe you went with them and you didn't say anything. And I was like, it's not an official trip. I just filled it. And then 20, literally, I think it was like 20 minutes after that show went out, I had posted on Facebook episode about going to North Korea. And there were so many comments with people that said, I'm in next time. And I said, cool, I'm going to go in August. And they were like, I filled the trip up in 20 minutes. And then I went, oh, well, this is a really interesting way to, to sort of go to North Korea because now I'm a tour guide there on trip number three. 
So then I posted again with some photos and people went, oh, I can't believe I missed that. And I said, I'm going to do one more. And I had people sign up and I think I filled it again in like 15 or 20 minutes. So it was just kind of a fun way to travel there for free, see this crazy weird place, be a tour guide in a country that doesn't even have tourists, you know, and uh, be some of the only Westerners to go there. And then, of course, we were some of the last Westerners to go there, too, because now it's completely closed. Okay, so we could probably do a whole episode on all the weird stuff about North Korea, but give me the yeah. three three top ones. Oh, it's so hard. to. There's no internet. So people mm-hmm. there have never seen Facebook. They have no idea what it is. I mean, they, the tour guides are like, I've heard of it. And they kind of imagine what it might look like, but they've never seen it. They didn't even have a mobile phone network until the third or fourth time I went there. So nobody had cell phones. Nobody. Just crazy, right? So, nobody had it. So when you get there, they take your phone away or something? Yes, at the airport. They lock it up in a locker at the airport. doesn't work there anyway. Hmm. So, and, oh God, there's just so many. There's no stores. There's no shopping. There are little stores, but they're for tourists, and you walk in there. It's not like North Koreans are in there buying stuff. There's, there's no shopping. There's no commerce. There's no cars. Ten-lane roads, no cars. There's no electricity late at night. When you're standing up, if you're in the restaurant at the top of the hotel... At 9 p.m., you can see all of the lights in the entire city go off, except for the lights that shine on the statues of the leaders. Those stay on. And then one at the train station. Imagine this. The entire city goes off. Another thing that's weird is when you wake up, you can open your window, and it's completely quiet. And then you'll hear some singing. And you realize that you're in a city, and since there are no engines, because there are no cars, there's no noise. So you can hear people singing the national anthem in some place and usually it's a construction site with workers and they're raising their hands in the air or something singing the national anthem before they start work or or some song and you're like how can i hear that i can barely see it you realize you know what there's no noise it's a city without any cars no noise at all it's like a creepy stephen king movie honestly it it is it's weird and you can't go walk around outside unaccompanied so even when you're in the city There'll be people riding around on bikes and walking around, but it's not like China where there's just millions of people everywhere. It's like there's just nobody or there's like two people walking. And you, if you say hi, they will ignore you. And if you look at them, they won't look at you a lot of the time. Or like young people will look at you and then the older people that they're with will yank them away. It's very strange. Mm-hmm. I can go on for hours. I mean, there are so many things in North Korea where you're just like, why is that a thing? How is this possible? Yeah, how is it that you're scared of me? I'm standing next to you at a line for a freaking roller coaster. Like, it's just weird. 40% or so of Americans own a valid passport today. It's actually high compared with a decade ago or so. Where does the travel influence for you come from? I was an exchange student when I was in high school. And I went, oh my gosh, my little town in America is so small. And everything here is so interesting. And some of that was escapism because I was in high school. But then I also kind of really dug what I was. I, I would grow up a, a year in a month that I traveled or I'd go somewhere for 10 weeks and come back and be like, wow, all my friends are children. What's going on here? And everything else was on super accelerator. So I remember I was, I was studying Russian, for example. And I was like, oh, I'm going to go to Ukraine over the summer. So I went to Ukraine and I took some language classes and I got a job there. And I spent 10 weeks in Ukraine and I came back. And my Russian teacher was like, oh, you're in the wrong class. You need to skip an entire year of Russian because you learned, you know, everything from the first couple of years of Russian and the next year 
like down pat in 10 weeks. And then I'd also read 15 books because I had a bunch of free time and I didn't want to just study Russian the whole time. So I, I, it's just everything that you do that's productive and learning, you just, it just freaking pedal to the metal the whole time when you're overseas and traveling or you'll meet somebody and you'll travel with them for three or four days. And you're like, wow, I'm this person's best friend right now. And you'll stay in touch for 20 years. And that to me is just a very special experience. There are people that if you add up all the time I've spent with them, it's probably like three weeks or a month. But since it was all travel time, we're like family. It's Mm -hmm. just unbelievable. It's really unbelievable. Did the travel come first or did the passion for language come first? The travel came first. When I first was an exchange student in Germany, there was a lot of folks that were like, and me, myself included, they were like, okay, look, man, you legitimately have not done well in any language class. You know, you got C's in French, German is harder. Now you're just going to go to Germany. And I'm like, oh, everyone speaks English. It's all good. Well, I ended up on the former East Germany. Nobody speaks English spoke mm-hmm. at, in 1997. They spoke Russian and German. And for three months, I was like, this sucks. And then after a while, I was like, I'm starting to understand what people are saying. So I leaned into it. By the end of the 11 months that I was there, I had really good German to the point where Germans were like, where are you from? Your accent is a little strange. And I'm like, America. And they're like, what? I thought you were from like 100 miles south of here or something. I thought, what village is this guy from where they don't teach proper grammar? And I'm like, yeah, I don't know the grammar because I just learned German literally not even a year ago. And it's all so weird that I just ignore comp- complex grammar. I just ignore it and say the words. If you could do your podcast in another language, which would it be? Oh, I mean, if I was super, f- I would just do it in Mandarin Chinese. Why? Imagine having a 1.3 billion person potential audience instead of, you know, whatever the English speaking Western world is. Because if you so don't just, just you know a numbers I mean? thing, a numbers thing, but also the tech over there, they're very receptive to it. So everyone has a smartphone. You know, you can go to a farm with a rice paddy and the farmer's got freaking WeChat on there, you know, in a social network. The biggest talk shows in China that are online have something like a hundred million live viewers at once. Oprah would kill to have a third of that amount of traffic at her peak. I know we're bumping up on time, so I'll I'll let you go. Where can people find out more about the Jordan Harbinger show and... Where can they find you online? Jordan Harbinger Show, any podcast app, jordanharbinger.com, of course, as well. And I hope people come and dig what we're putting, pick up what we're putting down. What is the ultimate mission of of the show? I want to teach people useful skills that they can't or would not get elsewhere in a way that is so easily digestible that they can be working out at the gym or driving along and they go, wow, I just learned about networking or wow, I just learned about how to organize something or be more productive in a way that didn't feel like I had to take a class on it. Actually, what's really cool, let's wrap up with this, your Friday format, right? People can Mm -hmm. write in and ask you about a challenge, something they want to learn about, something they're struggling with, and you address it right on the show. Correct. It's very cool. Oh, yeah. Uh, I love doing that. I love handling listener questions directly on Fridays because the guests teach a lot, but I also teach a lot and I can handle really specific problems really well. And of course, I call in reinforcements when it's somebody that needs a therapist or somebody that needs a professional whatever. I'll call that person because I have access to all these people. They should the audience should be given direct access to them as well. That's kind of the point of the show, right? Direct access.
Okay, man. Well, congratulations on all your success. Thank you so much for taking the time. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, man. Thank you for listening and being a part of E2. E2 is brought to you in part by Owner. With Owner, you can run a name search, register or incorporate your business, or even create a custom logo in just a few minutes. Make your business official at owner.co. That's O-W-N-R.co. Use the code E250 at checkout for $50 off. Indochino, made to measure suits and shirts at a great price. More at Indochino.com. And WeWork. WeWork is a global network of workspaces where people and companies grow together. WeWork, where businesses thrive. More at WeWork.com. Your positive support means a lot to us. So if you've enjoyed the episode, please leave a positive review on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you consume your audio. Until next time, make today count with whatever it is you're working on. Hey there, fabulous souls. I'm Stephanie Baklaan. And I'm Eden Alpert. And we're the hosts of the brand new podcast, Unapologetically Fab. Get ready to join us on an amazing and real journey as we dive into life after 40 and own it. We're all about changing the narrative, leaning into who you are, and living a life by your own design. Join us as we embrace life unapologetically and redefine success. This is Unapologetically Fab. An electric cast production. See you there. Electric Acid. Electric Acid.